0: take a minute to introduce myself. Uh, My name is David Monreal. You may recognize me from the times I've hosted here, um, had an opportunity to share in the past, but um, just to give you a little bit of background of of who I am, um, I've uh, served as a pastor for 22 years uh, with the Christian Missionary Alliance, and then for the last three years, I've worked at Judah Christian School uh, most recently, I'm, I'm the director of spiritual formation, and I also teach middle school Bible, and I like it. I um, <laughs> should probably add that, because I, every time I say that to people, I'm like, you know, they, they start thinking about having to teach middle school. But um, well, you remember last week how short Kevin's sermon was? Yeah. <laughs> um, and in fact, the last week I went up to him and I, I asked him if I could have his rollover minutes. You know, like it. You know, like a cell phone plan. If you don't use them, you can use them the next time. And, but apparently, I was told this morning it doesn't work that way. So, I tried. Um, turn with me to the book of Second Peter, uh, chapter one. I'll, I will be reading verses one through eleven. And um, encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one located right there in that, uh, the pocket in front of you. And you can find the scripture passage on uh, 1018. And so I'd encourage you to look on. And if you don't own a Bible, uh, take that Bible home with you. Write your name in it. Uh, read it throughout the week. Bring it back from week to week as we study the Bible together. And just make it your own. And so I encourage you to do that if you don't have a Bible of your own. 2 Peter chapter 1, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. How do people change? How how do we grow in our spiritual life? Um, this is the, the, the issue that Peter is addressing here. Um, he's wrestling with it in the context of a, of a church uh, that is in a, in a culture where the, 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 the politics are confused. There's persecution. Um, not too many years from now, Paul will be put to death. Peter will be put to death. Um, there's, there's persecution. There's false teaching uh, that is rampant. And and Peter is concerned that the believers will stagnate in their faith or uh, begin to shrink back. And so uh, Peter is writing here to wrestle with the question, how do we grow? How do we grow as believers? Does it just happen? Is it by uh, osmosis that if if we're in church enough that just automatically by being here um, that we will become mature? Um, going to Bible studies. Uh, What what does it take? How does it happen? And why do some people never seem to change? Um, John Ortberg, uh, author and pastor, writes in a book, uh, The Life You've Always Wanted, he shares a story about a guy in his church. And and I want to read the story to you. It's uh, kind of funny. He says this. There was a guy in his church. He says, we'll call him Hank. Um, Hank was a cranky guy. No, don't think, you're going to read it like, hey, I know that person. Um, This is from a book. Hank was a cranky guy. He did not smile easily, and when he did, the smile often had a cruel edge to it, coming at someone's expense. He had an act to discover islands of bad news in an ocean of happiness. He would always find a cloud where others saw silver lining. Hank rarely affirmed anyone. He operated on the assumption that if you compliment someone, it might lead to a swelled head, so he worked to make sure everyone stayed humble. He was a ministry of cranial downsizing. His native tongue was complaint. He carried judgment and disapproval the way a prisoner carries a ball and chain. Although he went to church his whole life, he was never unshackled. A deacon walked up to him, kind of joking, and asked one day, Hank, are you happy? Hank paused and thought about it for a minute, and then replied without smiling, Yeah. Well, tell your face. (laughs) But so far, as anyone knows, Hank's face never found out about it. Now, John Ortberg writes this. He says, Hank was not changing. He was once a cranky young guy, and he grew up to be a cranky old man. But even more troubling than his lack of change was the fact that nobody was surprised by it. It was as if everyone simply expected that he he would remain withered and sour year after year, decade after decade. No one seemed bothered by the condition. It was not an anomaly that caused head-scratching bewilderment. No church consultants were called in. No emergency meetings were held to probe the strange case of the person who had followed the church's general guidelines for spiritual life and yet was not transformed. Something was wrong. Hank wasn't changing. Why don't people change? Or maybe, why do we sometimes get stuck in our spiritual lives and it seems to go on and on? Well, this is what Peter wants to address. And he actually gives some reasons. I'll give those first and then we'll look at um, how to not go in that direction. But he gives some reasons in verse verse 9. So look, if you have your Bible open to 2 Peter 1, he says this, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having, forgo- having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, um, it's interesting in, uh, in other translations and in the original language, um, the word nearsighted comes after blind. And so it says, being blind, he's nearsighted. And so it's kind of confusing. And so um, it could mean one of two things. The, the ESV takes it to mean, uh, to mean this, um, I'm, I'm nearsighted, I have glasses, um, I don't need them to read, um, but all of you are just a blur. Um, I can see, well, I, I probably couldn't identi- identify you past about two rows. Um, and so I'm nearsighted. And what Peter may be saying is this, that when somebody is nearsighted, they can see what's right in front of them, but they can't see anything else so that everything else they're blind to. And so he may be saying that in the Christian life, we get so focused on the here and now, and what's right in front of us, we forget about spiritual reality and eternity. So that's one possibility. Um, The other possibility, they both make sense. The word nearsighted um, is often used to mean to to blink or to to willfully shut your eyes. And so what Peter could be saying is this is that the person is blind because they've intentionally closed their eyes to spiritual truth. They've just chosen to ignore it. And both of those in the context make sense, but it's one of the reasons he gives why people don't change, um, that, that they're short-sighted. Um, he also adds that they've forgotten. You know, one of the things in the Christian life, you see this in in the Old Testament, repeated in the New Testament over and over and over again. It says, remember. And we're so prone to forget. He says, remember. And and what he says here is, remember your past sin that you've been saved from. He says, they've forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. He says, you know, sometimes we get stuck because we lose the the beauty and the brilliance of the gospel to think, oh man, who would I be if it wasn't for Jesus? And even if you came to Christ as a young child, just um, just think about how much the gospel has changed who you you are and where your life would have been otherwise. And so he says that um, they've forgotten their, their cleansing from past sin. And so um, why, why do we get stuck? Why do we not change? And two of the reasons he gives is sometimes we just choose not to see what God is causing us to see or calling us to see. And then sometimes we just willfully forget. We, we forget all that God has done for us. God has rescued us by his grace, and by his grace, he wants us to grow up in him. By his grace, he wants us to mature throughout our lives so that every day we're continuing to become more and more like Jesus. And sometimes we get stuck. Maybe you know those people, and, and, and I've had people in my life... Um, who they, they just keep going forward in leaps and bounds, and they never seem to slow down. And, and I wonder, what is it in their life that is, that's different? And Peter gives us some clues to, in this passage. What are some of the realities in their lives that make them continually increase in their faith and in their walk with the Lord? And so there are three realities that we find here in 2 Peter. And uh, these are three realities that are true of the life of every growing Christian. And the first one is this. A growing Christian is centered on the gospel. Grounded in the gospel. Everything is gospel-motivated, gospel-saturated. Um, and, and we realize that everything flows from the gospel. Uh, and look at verse 3. And this is really a shocking promise. And so we're going to unpack it um, in, in this whole first section. He says this in verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through, him, uh, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Wow. Wow. What what Peter says is this, everything you need to live the Christian life, you already have. You already have, and that's shocking. You think, do I? how, How does that work? I don't understand it. Um, let me back up and then move back to this passage, this verse three, because really, verse three, it's interesting. There's actually no verb in verse three. Uh, translators put it in to make it flow because in English it's really hard to, but it's really just a, a run on from the previous, um, previous two verses. But notice what Peter says here. Um, he, he introduces himself, Peter, uh, a servant, uh, a slave of Christ, uh, an apostle. Uh, of Jesus Christ. And then he, begin, then he immediately turns to the gospel. He says, To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. To, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Do you ever feel like everyone has it together but you? Maybe I'm the only one. I, I always feel that way, you know. I, I was, and there's a there's a reason why that we we feel that way is because when we look at other people, all we see is the outside and how they present themselves. We have no idea the problems that are going on in their lives, the struggles that they have, the challenges that they have, the anxieties that they feel. And so we look at them and we see the outside of them, and we know the inside of us. And sometimes we feel like second class citizens. Like man, I. I don't have it together. Well, Peter's addressing this because we can feel like we don't have it all together. But look at what Peter says. Now, think of Peter. Okay, Peter, we know, you know, he denied Jesus. We know he was impetuous. But, but think of Peter. Peter walked with Jesus. I mean, he walked with Jesus every day, lived with him, heard all of the stories, he was there at the, the Mount of Transfiguration when he, when he saw the glory of Jesus even before the crucifixion. He, w- he knew of Jesus. He was there in the upper room. He celebrated the first Lord's Supper. He saw his death, resurrection. He, he saw the resurrected Jesus. He was taught after the resurrection by Jesus. But look at what he says about our faith to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. The faith you have is equal to the faith that Peter had. And so he, he, that's the gospel. We all stand before God under equal footing. And then he talks about grace and peace being multiplied in, uh, to you in the knowledge of our God and, and Jesus Christ our Lord. Just, he's saying that in the gospel, as you walk with Christ and you know Christ more, you experience his peace. And as you experience his peace, you draw closer to Christ. And so there's this reciprocal reality in our lives. And then he gets to verse 3. And he says that his divine power has granted us everything. Everything we need for a godly life. How? Well, here's what it is. It's because God hasn't given you a set of principles, and He hasn't just given you spiritual gifts. God has given you Himself. God has given you Himself. That when, when you come to Christ and Christ becomes a part of your life, that you are made alive and indwelt by the Holy Spirit and so that you have God himself with you every moment of every day. And so if you say, I don't have the resources, you have, you have Jesus. He's given you everything that you need it, it, in the person of Christ. And all of the promises are found in Jesus. In fact, Peter or Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 1.20. He says, For all of the promises find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Well, let me just make one practical application here about promises. Um, and when I, when I was a kid, I was, for whatever reason, I, got a, I, I had this attitude towards promise books. You know those promise books they, they sell at, you know, Christian bookstores or, you know, it's just all, And I really had a problem with them because it just felt like, well, you know, I'm just repeating. You know, I'm just looking at them and I didn't understand how it all worked together. But uh, let me give you an illustration. Imagine this. Imagine that I had a father who was a power lifter. You know, one, one of those guys who, you know, like rolls giant tires and, and lifts refrigerators by himself. And I have a dad who's a power lifter. And you come over to my house and I, I, and I have a refrigerator sitting unboxed in the middle of my kitchen. And you go, Dave, what's, what's that? And I said, oh, you know, my dad, if he can move that by himself, he can move that refrigerator. My, my dad can do it. Okay. Well, you come back six months later and you walk into my kitchen and you're kind of shaking your head because the refrigerator is still sitting there. And and then I tell you, oh, well, you see, my dad, he is so strong, he can move a refrigerator. In fact, I I remind myself of that every day. In fact, I wrote it on a three-by-five card and I taped it to my mirror in my bathroom. And you're kind of scratching your head and you go, but Dave... Have you ever called and asked him to help? You see the promises of God are always tied to a person. They're not just independent things. They they're always so when we when we apply them we're always asking, you know, God, give me faith. Give me your strength. You you're reading these promises, but you always remember that it's not just you're not just reciting something. You you're reciting something in relationship and, and calling out to God to give you what that promise is. So the promises of God resulted in, initially, remember it's the gospel, and he says, the promises of God lead us to Christ, and what he says in verse 4 is kind of confusing. It Kind of sounds like Oprah. Um, no, I'm serious. Look at, look at verse 4. He says, He says, uh, by which he has granted us these precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. That is such an odd way to talk about salvation. Well, uh, really, Peter is, a, is using the language that was common in that day, um, but he's not saying that somehow you become God, um, or that, you know, you get absorbed into God somehow. That, that isn't what he's saying. But what he is saying is this, is that when you, become, when you come to faith in Christ, you become a child of God. You become adopted into his family. When you come to Christ, he is the one who has made you alive and regenerated you. He is the one who has united you to Christ in faith. He is the one who has given you a, a new nature, renewed in the image of God. And Peter reminds us that he's the one who also rescued us from this world that is so corrupted by sin. So the person who is growing, one of the realities in their life is they're centered on the gospel. They're centered on the gospel. But there's this, a second reality in the life of the growing believer. And this one's a little bit harder for us to wrestle through, and it's this. A growing believer actively relies on grace. And there's a key word there, actively. So we actively rest in grace. Actively rest in grace. Um, Look at in verse 5, he he says this. um, For this very reason, make every effort. Um, look in verse, um, in verse 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Um, there is an active effort in the Christian life. Um, that, that there are things that God has called us to do, and if we don't do them, we don't grow. And this can be very Confusing. Because we think, well, I thought the Christian life is about grace, and now you're talking about our work, you're talking about our effort. How do grace and effort go together? And one one author, Jerry Bridges, said this. He said, grace does not make effort unnecessary, but rather grace makes it effective. There are two areas that we can fall into. One of them I'll call passivity. Um, and, and it's kind of the, the spiritual growth by osmosis, you know, um, if I come to church, I'm automatically going to grow. Uh, there's, a, there's a well-known phrase, let go and let God, and there's a way that that can be used well, but, but typically, you know, it's the idea of just like, well, I don't have to really do anything. If God wants me to grow, he'll make me grow, and if he doesn't make me grow, it's his fault. So there, there's a passivity that can seep into our lives where we just stop pursuing Christ and doing the things he's called us to do. Um, But there's a second error, and I think maybe more of us fall into this, and I know I do, and that second error is self-reliance. Self-reliance, self-reformation, self-help. And and what that looks like is this, is that we begin, that, that we forget how weak we are. And we forget how much we need Jesus, and we say, okay, well, I know what I need to do, and I'm going to do it. And, and we begin t- to not rely on Jesus. We begin to just rely on ourselves. We begin to rely on our own strategies. Um, and it can be in very subtle ways. Um, you know, we're struggling with, with something, and we go, well, I will listen to Christian music, and that will help me to not struggle. But we forgot to put Jesus in there. So, so here, here's what I mean. To say, Jesus, I'm really struggling right now. I'm going I'm to listen to this music and cause that music to, to change my thoughts in the direction of, of my life, of my thoughts, of this situation. Uh, think about it in coming to church. Um, you know, when, when you come to church, do you pray before you come and say, God, when I go to church, speak to me through your word and the power of your Holy Spirit. God, when I go to church, may I worship and glorify you because you're worthy of worship. It's not about the songs that are sung, whether I like them, um, whether it's Southern Gospel. I don't like Southern Gospel. Um, You know, do I go or or do I? Jesus, help me to worship you. When I read my Bible, is it just a matter of, well, it's time for me to read my Bible or say, God, speak to me through your word. Do you stop and say, I need your help in order to do this. I can't can't do it on my own. And so it's a life of active dependence, moment by moment, day by day. It's the difference between, um, you know, we have cell phones, right? And they always run out of battery. You know, because it has a rechargeable battery and sometimes we treat the Christian life like that. Where we say, well, I go to church to get plugged in and recharged for the week and then the whole week I'm draining. But, But what God says is we need to be connected to the power source continuously. We need to realize that we don't have any strength in ourselves to change ourselves or to affect change in anybody else. That we need Jesus. But... But when you realize that and in humility ask God for the grace and strength, then you can step out in faith and what you do is effective because it is energized by grace. In fact, that's the very thing that Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. He, he says this, For I toil i labor struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me so so what he says here is he says i labor what i do in ministry is hard work it is effort And the word for struggle there is a word in the Greek, it's agonizomai. It's a word that was used to describe an athlete who was straining and striving every fiber of his being to reach his goal. He says, I agonize, I strive, I struggle with all of his energy. So was it Paul? In a way, but it wasn't Paul, it was Paul. It was the power of Christ working in him. But it was him, but, but he was the one that was doing it. And this is what he says in Galatians as well. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what Paul is saying is, is, is it you? Yes, but it's not you. It's, it's the power of Christ in you. But that, that, that still means that God has called you to, to do certain things. And sometimes you get a little nervous with, you know, when we start talking about, and I'll use grammar for a minute, when we start talking about imperatives. You know, imperatives are commands. And we, we get a little nervous because it's so easy to fall into error. When we start hearing, well, the Bible says this, and the Bible says that, and the Bible says that. And, and, what, and, and the reason why is because it's so easy to, to fall into error. One of the errors is, is legalism, where we think, okay, as long as I do these commands, God loves me, and if I don't do these commands, God doesn't love me. And so, so we fall into this error of, of legalism to think that my, that my standing before God and his love for me is based on what I do or what I don't do. Um, related to that is moralism. And moralism thinks, it says, that the Christian life is just about being good. And so when you, as long as you apply these commands, then everything is okay. And of course, moralism then leads to externalism, where you forget that God is not concerned about the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And so what happens with moralism turns into just this external life. You know, and that's what the Pharisees were like. Jesus says, you know, you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Because they looked good on the outside. He says, you're, you know, you're like, you're like a grave. It looks all nice and pretty on the outside, but inside is full of dead man's bones. And so when we hear the commands of God um, that are found in the Bible, the danger is that we, we forget that that is connected to the relationship. And as soon as you separate the two, you fall into legalism or moralism or externalism, but not a vibrant Christianity. So Peter tells us, you know, make every effort to add to your faith. You have faith in Christ and now diligently pursue these qualities or characters in your life. Don't, don't sit back and rest on your laurels because the fact of the matter is is that you're never standing still in the Christian life because all of the currents are pushing you back. You're never standing still in the Christian life. Either you are pressing on and moving forward or you're drifting away because you can't stand still. And, and so what, what Peter says here is passionately pursue Christ but do it by grace. And so all of these virtues that he lists here, um, he says, you know, supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue here is moral excellence. He's really saying, become who you are. This is who God made you to be. This is the goal he has for you and work towards being the person that he has made you to be. He talks about knowledge, add to your your virtue knowledge. And knowledge here is that practical wisdom and discernment that comes with walking with Christ. He talks about, add to your knowledge, self-control. And self-control is the opposite of uncontrolled desire. That, that as you, the, the Holy Spirit gives you the strength to control yourself, you, you turn away from, from sin and your, and your uncontrolled sinful desires. He talks about steadfastness, and that's bearing up under hardship. To, to, to have endurance, to have perseverance um, when things get rough. Um, and then he talks about brotherly affection. And, of course, that's the affection and, and love, the familial love that we're to have for one another as fellow believers. And then he, he caps it all with love. And he says, if these qualities are yours, and so it's not a one or the other, it's all of them, and, and, and then continuing to, to cycle through and grow in them, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me close very briefly with the third, uh, the third reality in the, in the life of, of an effective believer. And so what, what's the final, the final reality? And that is this. A growing Christian is confident in God's calling. Um, Peter here, he says in verses 11 and 12, and it's, again, we can take it and misunderstand what he's saying. Um, He says in the the end of verse 10, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, or excuse me, um, earlier in verse 10, um, he says, "Um, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, Peter isn't talking about He's not saying that if you don't do these things, you're going to lose your salvation. Um, that, That isn't what's in view here. And we need to understand that there is a difference between the security of the believer and the assurance of the believer. So security and assurance. And so here's the difference. Security is the objective reality that God has you in his hand and he's not letting you go. So that's security. Assurance is my apprehension, my feeling of that relationship with Christ. Do I have, do, do I, I, I sense um, the reality of God in my life? And when we when we aren't pursuing Christ, when we're allowing sin to come in our lives, we can lose that assurance. That doesn't mean we've lost our security. So Peter here is talking about that assurance that we have. And that confidence that we have. And then he closes in verse 12, or verse 11. He says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance in the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here's the goal the goal is one day to stand before our Savior and hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. And the image that Peter uses here is, a, is an image from the Olympics. Because you see, when an athlete would compete in the Olympics, and then he would, and when he won, when he came back into town, what they would do is they would create a special entrance for him so that he could be he could be gloriously received into the community. And so, what Peter says is that you know we begin by grace, we continue by grace, the goal is by grace, and we want to hear, well done good and faithful servant. Would you join me as I lead us in prayer?